Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. Let's read verses 1 through 7 to start off. It said, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Here we start off with Paul going to Ephesus. We leave kind of on a note while Paulus, Apollos was at Corinth, and we talked about him a little bit more last week. But Paul goes on to this road to Ephesus. And Ephesus is a very popular town because it's kind of a, a place that all these different cities have to kind of come into to go out of. It's kind of like the port, you know, where you come in and you unload your goods there. So it's a commercial uh, populated place. It's a religiously populated place. You know, whenever you have a lot of people, you've got a lot of commerce, you've got a lot of wild things that can happen there. And that was the case with Ephesus. It was the home of the temple of the goddess Diana, which was a perverted form of worship. So all the people would come there and they would have their idolatry and their sexual rites that would take place there. The temple of Diana was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was beautiful in its day. It had these columns that were 60 feet high and it was very luxurious place to be very wealthy in a lot of ways and again had a lot and lot of people that went there anything you wanted you can go there and go to Ephesus and so Paul arrives there and it's interesting because as he's there he found some disciples now when you think of a disciple you think of a follower of Jesus but something's interesting about these disciples something's curious or something's missing Paul says he asked them a question, which begs, why did he ask them this question? Because he saw something there. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he goes, well, how were you baptized? And they were baptized into John's baptism, which was that of repentance. But that wasn't enough. You were, John was preparing the way for Jesus. So you need to receive Jesus. And he lays his hands on them. They're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon them. You can circle that word or underline it. That word on is the api experience. It, it, it is upon them. It's different than him coming into them because it would seem that they had some belief in Jesus. But they did not have the power of Jesus in their lives. This is very similar to what we saw take place in the previous chapter with Apollos. Apollos was talking very clearly about Jesus. But remember, Priscilla and Aquila said, there's something missing. You need the power of Jesus in your life, upon you, 
And when he found that out, he even became more dynamic. Now, it's real important to see the difference in baptism. In Ephesians, it says, Ephesians 4 verse 5, it says, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so some people will say, well, there's only one baptism. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is not scriptural. You're only baptized once because, after all, there is only one baptism. It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. And so there seems to be this idea, well, if there's only one baptism, what is this talk of other baptisms? It's confusing. How do I know what baptism? Am I baptized in John? Am I baptized in Jesus? Water baptism? There's the spirit baptism? There's baptism in fire? Well, it's important to understand the context and what's being addressed. Both in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, the one baptism is talking about the body of Christ, baptized into, a sense, the church, to become one of his own. But even John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is coming after me. It is he who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John talked about a couple of baptisms, the one of water and then also of the Holy Spirit and fire. We see that there's a baptism of suffering in Scripture. And so there are different types of baptism, and what baptism means is immersed. And so there are different experiences or immersions, if you will, that a believer can have once they are a part of the body of Christ. So there is one baptism that connects us all as believers, but then there are other baptisms that take place in our lives that are necessary for us to have power. Is it important? Very, very very important. Jesus, after the resurrection in John 20, appeared to the disciples and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's important because that takes place after the resurrection, but before Pentecost. It was at that point and place because the word receive is a completed tense. They became born again. They became Christians. But then he said, wait. In Jerusalem, for the promise. When the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And then you would have power to go and preach. It is one thing to have the Spirit of God in you. It's another thing to have the Spirit of God come upon you. This is actually something we see throughout the book of Acts. It's something that we actually even see in Jesus himself. Jesus, when he was baptized, came from the water, came back up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and he was filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, didn't he have the Holy Spirit before that? Of course he did. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But his ministry began when the Spirit came upon him, empowered him, enabled him to do the work that was before him. There are people who believe, and that's good, 
that's all they do. I believe it, their life has no life, has no power, has no fire. And Paul came into, and you know, I get this picture. Paul comes into there and they're, hi, we're Jesus' disciples. We're disciples. Go ahead, teach us something. And Paul's like, something's missing here, you know. Come on, guys, snap out of it. What's wrong? Have you guys been baptized with the Holy Spirit? No. You know, it's like, I don't know what it is that connected him. He's just saying, like, something is missing. There is life not happening in you. There is no power in your life. You might have knowledge of Jesus, and we're not really sure to what extent, if it was disciples of Jesus or just disciples of John the Baptist, and they never even heard of Jesus, it's possible here. But something was missing. Paul saw it and said, you guys, you guys need to be made alive. You need to have the Spirit come upon you, empower you. And there are three times that we see the Holy Spirit come upon people and they speak in tongues. First is in Acts chapter 2. The second is the Gentile Pentecost, if you will, with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And the third time is here. But there are five times where we see the Spirit come upon someone. There are two other times. One takes place in Acts chapter um, 8, verse 17. And then the other one is in 4, chapter 4, verse 31, where he fell upon them, the place was shaken, and they spoke the word of God boldly. So five times the Spirit comes upon them. Three of the times they are known to speak in tongues. Two of the times, once they spoke the word of God boldly, the other time it doesn't say anything except that someone saw that power was given when the Spirit came upon them. So we see five times throughout the book of Acts where the Spirit came upon the believers and it produced something in their lives. So it's an important thing and it's a necessary thing. We see also that it happened twice to the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. Chapter 2 and in chapter 4. So it's not a second blessing unless it's also a third blessing and maybe a fourth blessing and maybe a fifth blessing and you see that's kind of what we see to, seem to see happening is the Spirit of God is at work in the believers over and over and over again. That they are praying, they are being filled, they are laying hands, they are seeing the Spirit come upon them. There is dependency on the Spirit for power. We need that. You ever live your Christian life and feel like I'm out of gas? I'm just, I, I can't, I don't want to wake up tomorrow. I don't want to deal with whatever, work, kids, school. You can fill in the blanks. I am done. I cannot do this anymore. I need help. Anyone ever been there? Probably all of us more than once. And have you ever been in a time where maybe you're just praying or maybe you're in a time of worship? Maybe you're hearing the scriptures being declared, and all of a sudden, you get energized. All of a sudden, it's like, wha-bam. It's like a espresso, you know. It, it, it's better than espresso. I better be careful. 
it just energizes you're touched you were made alive you have hope you have faith you know that God is at work and you want to conquer the world for Jesus the spirit comes upon you gives you life quickens it and empowers you now if you have not experienced that what do you need you need to ask that's all you need to do you don't have to go to a class to find out what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit You don't have to have someone lay hands on you. It can help connect with faith. But what you need to do is ask. What you need to do is pray. What you need to do is seek the Lord that this might happen. And as it did happen, they were filled with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Uh, again, we talked about the gift of tongues a little bit more in depth in chapter 2. As we see this gift in chapter 2, it was definitely dialects or languages. But we see that there is, in Corinthians, the tongue of men and of angels. So there is tongues of men, and there is a spiritual language as well that is not understood unless it is interpreted. And so there is different types of tongues that are used. Uh, we went into that a little bit more in depth. But the gift of tongues is a manifestation station evidence of the Spirit. It's one. That they had boldness was another. But the ultimate evidence of being filled with the Spirit is love. That's what it is. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. I'm just a bunch of noise. If I have faith that mountains could be removed, but I don't have love, it's of no avail. It's all connected. Love is the evidence. Love is connected to the heart of God is the evidence that we are connected and filled with God's spirit. And so this is a little bit of, of once again, I guess a little reminder of the necessity of the spirit of God working in our lives. And we're going to talk about this more on Sunday, a little bit more in depth. I'm going to cover some things here. But it's so important and sometimes we need to ask for this. If your life is just dead and you feel like my Christian life is just a bore and I'm not excited for the Lord and I'm just not into it, pray and ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit. Ask him to empower you. Well, I don't want to speak in tongues or something, you know what? God's going to give what he wants to give. Do you want his power? Do you want his life? Then don't be afraid and ask. Let him give you what is necessary for your life, whether it's tongues, whether it's boldness, whatever it is. But ask, because otherwise you're going to be, yes, I'm a Christian. Hallelujah. An Eeyore Christian. <laughs> Jesus is coming back, I guess. You know. Anyway, let's go on um, before I do any more Disney characters. Okay. Verse 8, let's go to verse 8 and down uh, through 13. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years, 
so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What an incredible thing this is. Again, that everyone, Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord, that it had such an influence in so many people. And as we see Paul arguing in verse 8, it might say disputing and persuading, the whole idea is he is, again, having this debate going on with people. He's conversing with them, he's talking with them, he's sharing with them, and getting them to start dialoguing with him to be able to reveal the truth of who Jesus is. And as he's doing this, of course, there's some who are obstinate, they believe, and when that happens, and they start bad-mouthing him, he just leaves. He doesn't, okay, I'm going to prove it to you, and I'm going to put my heels in the ground, I'm going to force this upon you. When they get obstinate, he leaves. Jesus said to do the same thing. If you go to a house and they will not receive you, dust the dust off of you, you know, just so you, when you leave that house, dust it off your feet, let them know. And we see this happening throughout that they just shake the dust off. You don't want any part of this? Okay, I'm done then. I'm not going to try and push something that doesn't want to be received. Don't cast your pearl before swine. That's the idea. It's like, I'm not going to continue trying to share with you if now you are obstinate and going to be obviously against it. I'm not going to waste the time. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean God isn't going to work in you later on. But right now, I'm not going to continue just fighting with you when you're being obstinate. He left. And then it says he went to the hall of Tyrannius. Now, what would happen, and it's noted in Ephesus, that what they would do is they would work from early morning to about 11 o'clock or so, and then they would take a big break in the afternoon because it was hot. And then they would come back to work maybe around 4 o'clock or so and work into the evening. It was actually said that there are more people awake at 1 in the morning in Ephesus than are awake at noon because they would take a big chunk of their time. I like this place, you know. <laughs> I, they would go and they would take a big break in the middle of the day. And so Paul, during this break goes and gets this hall that's not being used and starts ministering there. Kind of like a school that's not being used at night. You can go and meet and start having a Bible study. And what a great example. You know, there's availability. No one's there. Let's make use of that place. And so he starts doing this for two years. Hey, something's going on at the Hall of Tyrannius. Yeah, Paul's teaching. And Jews and Greeks and everybody start knowing. And we see that Paul always goes to these metropolises, these places where there's a lot of people, because now from this place where people are coming in and going out, coming in and going out, the gospel is reaching more and more people. Remember we talked about the word pagan meant country dweller, because it was those in the country that didn't hear the gospel. Those in the city like Ephesus or Corinth, they heard the gospel, because that's where it started. Where is there a lot of people? That's where we're going to go preach. And it almost seems like God's smallest denomination starts with the city. You know, Jesus told his disciples, you know, in Acts chapter 1, go make disciples of all men in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts. He starts with the city. He's talking to 12 guys. Make disciples. Start with the city here. You can imagine those guys going, what's the game plan? You know, what comes after? And then the uttermost parts of the world, it's like, oh my gosh, what's, what's he thinking? He's talking to us, but that's how God sees. 
And Paul had that same vision. Yeah, the city. And everyone started knowing and hearing about who Jesus was. And they heard the word of the Lord. Verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illness was cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, this is one of those verses that just seems strange. It's like, and, and the handkerchiefs were the headbands that he would use. Remember, he made tents. And so he'd be working there in the heat of the day, had this funky old sweatband, and he'd throw it off, and they'd take it, and they'd take it to the sick people. It's like, you know. But again, it's a point of contact. It's not that the headband had anything. Jesus did the same thing with making mud, putting on their eyes. James tells us to anoint with oil. Is there something special about the oil? What kind of oil? Does it have to be 30 weight? Is it, you know, olive oil? What, what, what's the connection here with the oil? The oil is a representation. It's a point of contact. Remember the woman with the issue of blood in John 8. Touch, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I could be healed. And she touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus said, who touched me? The disciple says, Lord, there's all these people around you. What do you mean who touched you? I felt virtue leave. Someone touched me, and the woman was healed immediately, instantly and immediately at the same time. She's healed from this, and all of a sudden, she says, I touched you. And he said, woman, go. Your faith has made you whole. She had faith if I could just touch his garment. That was the contact. She had faith in him. Remember when Jesus went back to his home city, but could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. If we come before God and say, well, I don't really expect anything to happen. You know, I'm going to pray, Lord, but I doubt that you're really going to do anything. You'll probably be, you're probably right. If you don't believe and you don't expect and you don't want really God to do anything, you'll probably get what you want. But if you have faith and believe, if I can just contact God in some way, and maybe it'll be through a song, maybe it'll be through the reading of scripture, maybe it'll be the laying on of hands, there's some kind of contact that takes place that energizes you and your belief and your faith in Jesus. He, he does amazing things. And what a tragedy it is that we don't believe the way we should. What a tragedy. And the lack of working in God in our life and the power is evidence of that. And instead of accusing God or blaming it on doctrine, you know, it, it probably is us. It's kind of like dog training. You know, people, my dog's bad. You know, my dog's doing this and my dog's doing that. And I go over there and the dog's great for me. And it's like, you know what? Your dog is okay. It, it's you. You're the problem here, you know. It's not me as they're holding their little dog, you know, in their arms and they're feeding it food from the table. What do you mean it's me? You know, I, I love my dog. It's like, well, no, it's you. A lot of times God isn't working because it's us. It's not him. It's not, well, you got to believe the right thing. You just have to believe. You don't need to be educated in belief. These people, they barely knew anything earlier and they were healed. They're getting handkerchiefs. They're touching them. God is doing miraculous things. Why? There was faith. There was faith that God could do things. We need faith. 
And it's humbling to think of how little faith we have. Why? Because why do I have such little faith? How do I know? Well, because how, how I don't ask very much. That kind of shows that I don't believe. How much do you ask God things? How do you, much do you ask for God to work in your life? Well, sometimes. Why not? Why not more? Do you really believe? The more we pray shows the more we believe. So it's a challenge for us. How much do you really believe? And now, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man on whom the evil spirit, who had the evil spirit, jumped on them, overpowered them all, and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. What a picture. This is almost comical, but it's kind of weird, too. You know, it, these people, it's again amazing that even though they didn't know Jesus, they had belief, at least, I see these things happening in his name, so let's ask and maybe, you know, he'll do something. I heard a story of a, a town that there was a bar that started opening up in the, that opened up in the town, and so the church got together and started praying that God would do something and get rid of this, you know, bar and, that was in their town, and the next day, there was a lightning storm, struck the bar, and fried it, just destroyed it, totally demolished it. And then the man who started the bar went to court and sued the church because he blamed them for getting his bar struck with lightning. And the church came and they said, Nuh-uh, it wasn't us. And it's funny because the bartender believed that God did it, but the church didn't, you know, it's like... You guys prayed and God did this. And they said, no, -uh, it wasn't us. You know, it's kind of funny because these seven sons of Sceva, like they believe something's going on. So they're going to try and do something even though they don't have Jesus. Now, this is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Because as they go there, they hear, you know, the spirit says, well, yeah, I know Jesus. And I, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And he comes upon them, beats them, and then they go streaking through the city. You know, they're just left out. And what's interesting is because of this, verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being held in high honor. It's amazing what fear can do. Whenever there's an earthquake, church attendance increases. Whenever there's a hurricane or a natural disaster, church attendance increases. Why? Because people are aware of how fragile they are. I was, uh, I don't know what you call it, writing on Facebook uh, to a gal who was over in Wales who said that a friend of hers just died. And it was making her think. She's not a believer. It's amazing how those kind of instances make you think. And so here's this instance that causes fear. And all of a sudden people are afraid. And what do they do? It seizes them. And the name of the Lord was held in high honor. 
all of a sudden people started showing a little bit more respect to the Lord because there was something supernatural that happened, something that was beyond their ability to understand, something that made them wonder. And it made God a little bit higher in their thoughts and in their minds. And many, verse 18, of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Wow. Think of that were to happen. People were to come and openly confess their evil deeds. You know, part of us is like the National Enquirer. You know, we want, we want to know, what, what, what did you do? But imagine what would take place when people just came and wanted to get right with God. And just said, you know what? I've been drinking, I've been smoking pot, I've been living this kind of life, and I want to get rid of it in my life. You know what? I've been involved with pornography. You know, I've been cheating and stealing from my boss. I want to get right with God. You know, I, I've been, you know, cheating at school. Whatever it is, whatever was going on in their life, what would happen if our church came and people just started openly confessing their evil deeds? Can you imagine how freeing that would be? Can you imagine people would say, wow, that's, that's neat. But when we think about, okay, then you start. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that's okay. You know, why don't someone else go first? It, it, there's pride. I, I don't want to go and confess my evil deeds. I don't want people to know the junk in my life. And what a shame that the church is not a place where people can confess their evil deeds and then move forward where we're so worried still about what people think, what will someone say, what will they do if they find out about me. Well, here they were confessing their evil deeds, and a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly, and when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now that's about a year's salary for over 100 people. So it's a lot of money. It's a big chunk of change here that are involved. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. When God moves, it changes people's lives. They didn't pass a law that said, let's outlaw all the articles of sorcery and scrolls that have just dealing with sorcery and things of evil nature. Let, let's ban them. There was no bill. There was no uh, picketing against, you know, these sorcerers. People's lives were just changed, and they got rid of it. And as they got rid of those things, then the word of the Lord spread and grew in power. In Wales, the Welsh Revival in 1901 affected so many people that all the pubs in the nation of Wales closed because no one was going. All the pubs in the whole country closed down because no one was drinking. It wasn't because they started a, a picket against, you know, drinking, don't go to the pubs. People were going to church and not going to their pubs. Heard one story when we were over there about this church where they were praying. This is Mariah Chapel. We were actually there at the chapel, and one of the gentlemen was talking about the story that happened. And as 
they were there praying. They were praying for this one woman's husband, and this, his, uh, his son was there also at the church, was praying for his father, and the whole church was just laboring in prayer for this man. The man was where he was at a pub. He was a coal miner, and he was there at the pub afterwards, and he said he went to pick up his glass, and he couldn't lift it from the counter. And he was trying to, and he thought, this is a strange thing. I can't get this off of the counter. And he was trying and trying, and it freaked him out. And all of a sudden, he said, you need to go down to the church. And so he left the pub, went down to the church, saw all these people praying, and there was his wife and his son at the front altar, and they were praying for him. And he broke down in tears. He went there, and he started crying, and he received the Lord. I know it's just kind of it gives you chills, makes you think. What what would happen if we believed, and if God started changing lives, and we really started living this Christian life, that it impacted people and changed them. No more playing games. I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about how you look in front of people. I'm talking about the living God empowering your life and moving through you in a way that changes not only you but those around you. <coughs> What would happen? Everyone started coming to this place. They started automatically getting rid of their junk. You didn't have to tell them, stop living this way, stop doing this, you know, give up this lifestyle, whatever. They changed on their own because God knocked on their hearts and said, I'm real. Well, of course, as this happens, well, verse 21 first, there's this little couple of verses here they're almost like a little side note but they're powerful because after this had happened Paul decided to go might say decided in his spirit or but we don't know exactly if it's the spirit of God or it's in Paul's mind how it took place it's probably both after this had happened Paul decided to go to Jerusalem passing through Macedonia and Achaia after he had been there he said I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. All of a sudden, Paul gets a hankering to go to Rome. I need to go to Rome. You know, these towns, these cities, Ephesus, these metropolitans, they're okay, but if I'm really going to make an impact, I need to go to the heart of this. I need to go to Rome. And I just think it's so cool that Paul's vision just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And he finally says, I'm going to go to Rome. And he did. Probably wasn't the way he thought. He got an all-expense paid trip to Rome through the prisons. You know, He got arrested and he made it all the way to Rome where he eventually lost his life. But this little note, and it's neat that Luke writes it down. Now you need to go to Rome. All of a sudden, you know, Luke might have been sitting there or someone's there and all of a sudden Paul says, you know what, guys, I need to go to Rome. Probably like, what? Where'd that come from? I, I do. I need to go to Rome. It's just on my heart to go there. And so this little couple of verses are here. But now back to what's happening in Ephesus. In verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way, which means Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius who had made silver shrines of 
Artemis, or the goddess Diana, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen and related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in particular the whole province in Asia. He said that the man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now Paul hits him where it counts, in the pocketbook. You know, all of a sudden their business is dwindling because all these people are becoming followers of Jesus. And they're realizing that idolatry is foolish. God's not to be worshipped with things made by man's hands. That's foolish. And it's interesting that he kind of already knows what Paul is saying to people. And it's affecting his business. Now we've got to put a stop to this. And once again, Paul has such influence on a place, and the things, the gospel really, has such influence that it changes the place. Where the commerce changes because of faith in God. Wow. What an amazing thing. So now these people start making up, we got to do something about this. And so they get this one guy, the silversmith, and he gets the other guys, and he pleads to them, guys, we're losing money here. And they can all identify with that. And then he also says, and what about the goddess? She needs to be worshipped too, Diana or Demetrius. Or Artemis, excuse me. We need to continue that. She has her good name. And so he appeals to them monetarily, and he appeals to them religiously. Hits both worlds. We gotta stop this. We gotta make a. We gotta make an impact. So he stirs up this group of craftsmen. In verse twenty-eight, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. And so you shouldn't go to the movies, I guess. No, uh, anyway, this whole group of people rushes down to this one area where they have kind of like a, a giant auditorium. And they take these two people, and Paul wants to go, and they say, Paul, don't go. It's wild enough. You know, Paul... You're, you're not the kind of guy who settles things down. You're the kind of guy who throws the match on the thing. You know, it's like Paul goes there and goes, oh, yeah? And he just kind of, boom. And you think this is something he's going to, they say, Paul, don't go there. Besides, haven't you almost died enough? What is it with you? you got to go to these places. And Paul just has a zeal that can't be quenched. And the assembly was in confusion. Verse 32, some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I love that. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, we're, we're, why are we here? I don't know, but they're all yelling, yeah. So you get it. It's the mob mentality. They're all just shouting. They're all just, we're here for something. I'm not sure what, but that whole mob, they're just shouting and they're yelling. And they're going on. And verse 33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front. I like that. The Jews pushed. Now, why did they do this? Because if they didn't stop this, most likely they were going to be blamed for something because there was a lot of anti-Semitism that was taking place. And so they pushed him up there to try and deal with this, to squelch what was taking place, so that they wouldn't be blamed and persecuted for that. So they pushed Alexander up there. I like that. He didn't walk up on his own. They pushed him up there. And as he goes up to there, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him, he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, again, showing the anti-Semitism, all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they start shouting this. Now, that seems like a long time, but have you ever been or seen on the news anyway after, say, the Lakers win the championship out in the streets of L.A.? when they're turning over cars and burning police cars and they're shouting, Lakers, we're number one, we're whatever they're shouting, it'll go on for a lot longer than two hours. Or ever even in seeing some of like in Palestine, if there's something that's going on or some of the Islamic countries, they'll be shouting over and over, great is all, great is all. They'll shout it for hours and hours and hours. It's this frenzied state, the mob mentality, and that's what they did for two hours. When they saw, just as they saw this guy was Jewish, that he was a Jew, they, okay, we're going to shout out, great is Artemis, the god of Ephesus. Again, this is the goddess Diana that they worshipped. The city clerk quieted the crowd, this is after two hours, and said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? And of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After they had said this, he dismissed the assembly. What he does is he appeals to them. He goes, guys, if you don't settle down and you're considered a riot, the Roman army is going to deal with this, and it's not going to be pretty. If you've got a legal question, you can go and see the proconsul. You can deal with it legally. Don't deal with it this way, or it's going to be ugly. It's going to be trouble, and he finally dismisses them, and he lets them all go. So we see now, imagine what happens tomorrow. I mean, what is everyone talking about? Did you guys hear about the riot? 
You hear about the assembly? What was that about anyway? I don't know. I was there. Well, I think it was about these guys, and, you know. And pretty soon, again, there's just going to be more talk of what's going on. It's because of Jesus. He stirred up some people's hearts. Some people don't like it. Some people are more concerned with making money, even if it's for the wrong reasons. They don't want to let go of their lifestyle, even though people are being changed. And so they start something, and we see persecution is beginning. It's only going to escalate. It's not going to subside. This is the beginning of when the church is being born in cities, and people don't like it. You know what? People don't like it today. People don't like it when you stand for something that is true and if they are not standing with you. Because your light exposes their darkness. John tells us that the light came into the world, but the world did not perceive it because the world loved the darkness. It's the same way. Some people do not want to change. And you can't convince them. You need to move along. Maybe you'll just water and someone else will help later on, but you can't make someone change. Eventually, they're going to have to make the choice, am I going to follow the true and living God, or am I going to continue serving idols and things that perish? And they might give you a hard time, they might put up a fight against it, it's their choice. But the truth is, God is going to be heard. He will have the last word. We can either believe him now or we will believe him later. But we need to move on. But as he dismissed them, it's time for us to, to dismiss. So let's, let's pray. Father, a lot of things in this chapter, a lot of good information, things to think about. And Lord, most of all, I'm struck with how you are able to change entire cities. And you do it through people who are empowered by your spirit and living lives that are committed to you. Lord, I pray that would be us. I pray we would have lives that would be on fire, sold out for you, and that you would do a mighty work in us. Lord, may you give us boldness. May you fill us with your spirit. May he empower us to do your work. We ask that you would be honored within our lives, that we might point to you that you might be glorified. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness, your goodness. We do pray and ask these things in your precious name. Amen.